0: Welcome to The Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, The Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Alison Schrager. She is the co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners, a journalist at the site Quartz, and the author of a new book called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Welcome to The Money Answer Show, Allison.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So just tell us a little bit about your background, uh, economics, and and how you got into courts, and basically the beginning of of why you wanted to do this book.
2: So my background, um, given the book title, might be surprising. I'm an economist who studied the economics of retirement, Um, so not necessarily something you normally associate with brothels, but uh, they actually are more related than people think. Because I did my PhD in retirement economics at Columbia, and then out of grad school, I think I needed to rebel, so I ended up as a journalist, and I started at The Economist. And then a couple months into that, I met Robert Merton, and he was also interested in finding innovative ways to finance retirement. So we worked together for seven years, and then that whole time, I went back and forth between journalism and finance, and got more interested in storytelling, and so, eventually, I left The Economist and went to courts. And it just dawned on me over all these years working in retirement finance how we need better stories to understand risk. You know, we've put this huge risk problem on every individual now that we've moved from defined benefit to 401k plans. Yet, we don't really give people the tools and how to think about risk and how to internalize these relationships so I figured, you know, I love storytelling. I find personal finance and retirement finance fascinating. Uh, maybe I could take what I felt everyone needs to understand about risk in terms of personal finance and find really good stories that would resonate and be fun for people to read. And as I said, that was the idea for the book. And as a journalist, I had all these connections and all these weird, quirky industries, and I brought them all together.
1: So how is this book different? Um, there's lots of books about risk kind of mathematical models and econometric models, very math uh, algorithm oriented, I guess you might say. How is the way you put it across different in this book than all those books?
2: Well, in a lot of ways, it's more similar than people realize. I When I, you know, think of the uh, risk models I certainly studied with Merton, you know, they are parables, right? What's a mathematical model but a parable? It's taking a very complex, unknowable thing and distilling it down to the basic things you have to know and understanding how they relate to each other, which is really all that storytelling is or parables are, traditional parables, like, you know, in the biblical sense are. So, it is similar, but instead of using, there's no math in the book. It tells stories I think anyone can understand and relate to to tell the same story. So let's
1: get to the basic of what is risk. You talk about the derivation of it in Greek and German. Mm-hmm. What is risk, and what is the basic problem about risk that we're then going to help people solve?
2: Well, technically, like using, so finance is the study of risk in financial markets. So by the financial definition it is just a probability distribution. It is everything that you think that might happen and how probable it is. Um of course, you know there are problems with that estimate, obviously, it falls short, it might be inaccurate, or people have problems internalizing it. I think this is something we see in personal finance a lot, is people, you know, you talk to a financial planner, and you'll explain that you're really uncomfortable with downside risk, you can't handle losing money, that makes you very uncomfortable. So a financial planner will put you in assets that are pretty safe, you know, that's a hedge, you know, any hedge is Balancing risk-free and risky assets, you give up a lot of upside, but you also protect against downside. But then the stock market goes way up, and people are like, "Well, I missed out." So I think, and that's the way we have it. We, you know, we see that distribution that makes sense to us. But then, when you get the upside of risk, you feel like you missed out, or you know, you made the wrong choice. So I, I think that's sort of where we need better understandings.
1: So some people think that they take too little risk. Some people think they have too too much risk, and we're going to get into this in detail with all different stories. But in general, how can people take the right amount of risk for their financial circumstances and their psychological makeup?
2: Well, I think what makes it complicated is it changes over time. You know, and certain people are comfortable with risks in one area of their life and not in the other. And that's why, in another way, my book is really different from certainly a lot of personal finance books, is I really believe that financial planners play an important role in that and helping you understand, you know, what risk you're comfortable with, what risk you really can tolerate, and helping you find the right balance between risky and risk-free. And I think education and knowledge go a really long way. And You know, I think often people you know, try to calibrate their risk without even really knowing what they're taking a risk for. Like, what is their goal? Is it income in retirement? Is it saving for their child's education? Is it, you know, being able to have a more flexible work or life balance? You know, it is, you need a very clear goal. And for then from there, it becomes a lot easier just to see, well, how much risk do I need to take to get there? Like traditional defined benefit Finance. I mean, granted, they never did this, but they should have. You know, the way they were supposed to finance it was was to figure out what their liabilities were and take just enough risk to get to meet that li- their liabilities, and then take risk off the table. I mean, granted, they never reached their liabilities, so they never did that. But that was always the idea: is you re- you figure out a very clear goal, and then you take exactly as much risk as you need to take to get there, and then you take risk off the table.
1: Yeah. Uh, let's get to the uh, core of your, the, the title of the book, which is what you call Brothelnomics, I guess. Uh-huh. And um, so there's legal and illegal sex workers in Nevada. Why are uh, sex workers, let, let's do the supply side first, I guess you might mm-hmm. say. Why are they willing um, to take less money, in effect, for having a, risky, a lower risk environment in these uh, legal brothels in Nevada?
2: Well, sex work is a super risky job. I mean, think about it. You have a much higher probability of being murdered. If you work in the illegal market, the odds are you're advertising yourself on the internet and you're going to, like, hotel rooms or private apartments with the sort of men who troll the internet looking for sex workers who maybe aren't always, you know, it attracts not everyone but some unsavory characters. So, you know, it's a dangerous job. They could be police. They could be a violent lunatic. So, you know, they have to spend a lot of time screening, and that's a very imperfect way to sort of make sure that this is a safe, going to be a safe encounter. So the good thing about the legal brothels in Nevada is they don't have to worry about any of that. First of all, it's perfectly legal, so you can't be arrested doing it. And a lot of the women I spoke to there just are just those sort of people who didn't want to break the law. For whatever reason, this is the job they wanted to do, but they didn't want to have to break the law to do this job. Um, they also have great security. They have panic rooms in every, in every room or sorry, panic buttons in every room, so they don't have to worry about, you know, being attacked, and to be honest, I, I don't think someone with those intentions would even go to a legal brothel, because they know they couldn't get away with it, yeah. um, and in, they get health care, they get access to disease screening, they get the institutional support of being in a brothel, of course, that has its downsides, too, because, you know, you have to actually deal with the workplace dynamic. But so I think all of these things is why they are actually willing to give up 50 percent of their earnings, not to mention they as legal sex workers, they have to pay taxes. Um, so they give up. like If you count the brothels cut and their taxes, you know, take 80 percent of their earnings for all that security.
1: So, so basically, they're taking an awful lot less risk, but as a result, earning a lot less money. So kind of less risk, less return is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, like financial markets. today. If you yeah. invest in treasuries, you take a lot less risk, but you have a sure thing.
1: And let's talk about the demand side now. So people who are going to the brothels, uh, are they paying a higher price for all that security? Or what? what is the dynamics on the demand side?
2: They're paying a much higher price. Um, I, uh, was able to get data on illegal sex transactions, um, scraped from various internet websites. And I was able to, went to the brothels in Nevada and interviewed the women on, you know, what they charge for different services. And I found the median price in the brothels about $1,400 an hour, but it's only $350 if you go to the illegal market. So they're paying a fairly hefty, um, premium as well to reduce the risks Because it's also risky for customers. I mean, just look at what happened to Robert Kraft. He could have saved himself all the aggravation if he just went to a right. legal brothel. hmm <laughs> Indeed.
1: So, so, so let's talk about the price dynamics. So the, the, the supply side is feeling safer. The demand side is feeling safer and willing to pay a higher price. That means that there's profits available for the brothel itself. Is, is that because they're willing to provide... That security.
2: Yeah, and that's why I think it's pretty cool about it, because normally when I think of pimp, I think of some guy who pushes women into these really unsafe situations and then reaps the benefits, which you know is a screwy risk market, because people who take more risk should get more reward. And that's why you know criminal markets tend not to work that well, because you don't have transparency. But in this, it's like what Dennis Hoff did is he took the spread of that risky transaction on both sides, and that's what made him money.
1: So how does that apply to uh you know, more general economics, or even you're starting a business, can that model be used in a more generalized way?
2: Absolutely. I think it's always about where, what's the right price you want to pay to reduce your risk? You know, you can get more, you know, all these women at the brothel could probably earn a lot more money if they just left and worked out, went out on their own, but they take on a lot of risk and that's not right for them. For most sex workers, that is the right choice. They don't want to work in a brothel. They don't want to give up their money. So I think it's like whenever you take a risk as a business, you feel like, okay, I want to take a risk. I want to become a sex worker. or I, I want to, you know, have a startup, you know, but you have to sort of calibrate how much risk you're willing to take and what taking less risk means you're giving up.
1: Is the amount of risk that people are willing to take often based on their own upbringing and their parents were very conservative and went through the depression and didn't want to take any risk, or their parents might have been baby boomers in the, the prosperous 60s and 70s and they're much more willing to take risk? Is that part of the kind of equation and the amount of risk people are willing to take?
2: There's evidence of that. I mean, there's certainly evidence that certain communities are more prone to entrepreneurship because they grow, grow up that way. I mean, and there's depression babies were scarred from that. And there's actually, anyway, millennials had the prosperous boomer parents. There's a lot of evidence that the financial crisis might have scarred them from taking more risk.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, so is that correct? I mean, because they've had a certain experience, whether it be the financial crisis of 2008 or the depression, I mean, that may not be relevant to what's happening today, but it's like a Psychological hangover, I guess you might say, that may be coloring their willingness to take risk, either too much or too little.
2: Definitely, I was just see. I just saw an interesting paper that speculated that the reasons why you know treasuries are so expensive is because there's such a high demand for low risk assets because everyone's so scarred from the financial crisis still.
1: Amazing! It really is amazing. Yes, <laughs> very good. Okay, uh, we're gonna take a break. Um, my guest this hour is Alison Schrager. Uh, She's the co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners. She's a journalist at Quartz, and she's the author of a new book called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. You can find out more about her and her book at alisonschweger.com. We'll be back after this. Hiring isn't as easy as putting an ad in a newspaper or posting on a job board. With more qualified candidates than ever, You need something that helps you find the right people for your business, and LinkedIn Jobs does just that by recommending matches based on the criteria you set. With more than 500 million active members, people come to LinkedIn every day to make connections, grow their careers, and discover new job opportunities. And nearly 90% of LinkedIn users are open to new opportunities, but not actively scanning job boards. This means LinkedIn Jobs gives you access to an entirely different demographic than anyone else. I tried LinkedIn Jobs myself and was amazed at how fast the perfect candidates I was looking for showed up. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who best fit your role. Factors like collaboration, work ethic, and adaptability are all taken into consideration. So LinkedIn Jobs can help you find someone who's not only qualified, but also matches with your company's culture. Sure, your LinkedIn Jobs matches are based on skills and background, but also on the candidate's interests, activities, and passions. LinkedIn Jobs gets your job in front of the most relevant, qualified candidates, so you can focus on making a hire you're excited about. Post a job today at answers, and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash moneyanswers. Terms and conditions apply.
0: We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
3: Attention Heroes! Current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com. 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners.
1: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Alison Schrager. She's the co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners, a journalist at Quartz, and also the author of a new book called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. You can find out more at her website, AllisonSchrager.com. Welcome back to the show, Allison. Uh, great to be here. Just Tell us a little bit more about Lifecycle Finance Partners and what kind of risk uh, services you provide.
2: Um, well, that company is mainly, as I said, doing the work on retirement finance, finding creative ways that we can tackle the retirement problem as an income problem because it's mainly been posed as a wealth problem. Like you get this magic number of assets before you retire when really people should the investing towards income, a consistent income they can count on in retirement, and really like taking the best we know from defined benefit plans and figuring out how to apply that in a DC structure and particularly like how to develop tools that will help advisors do those things.
1: When the big shift was made from defined benefit plans where people didn't have to worry about it, they just get a certain payment to defined contribution plans like 401ks and 457 plans where people have to make decisions, do you think they thought about the implications of that as far as the risk being uh, put on workers who are not particularly uh, suited or or trained to handle that risk?
2: Well, they did and they didn't. I think they knew the risk was expensive, which is why companies didn't want it anymore. But what fascinates me about the move from defined benefit to defined contribution, which I don't think was necessarily even a bad thing, I think there are advantages to that sort of structure, is that no one thought about post-retirement. Like, you look at even, like, Australia, which move like or all these countries, except for maybe Chile, they moved like, headlong into, okay, let's have everyone have an individual account. And everyone thought a lot about what wealth accumulation would mean and what would that look like. And it took us a little while, but we pretty much figured out, all right, you know, you should be in a low-fee fund and, you know, you should take maybe less risk as you get older – and, you know, we should have good defaults. But no one has really thought about how people spend that down or how they're supposed to invest once they don't have labor in earnings anymore. And it sort of just, still to this day, just I've been doing this forever it shocks me. that We kind of moved into this whole program without ever thinking about what will people do when they actually retired.
1: So what advice do you give people who have accumulated a decent amount of money in their 401ks? They've had these programs now for almost 30 years. They've got a big pot of money. Uh, what should they do? Uh, when I mean, the, the classic 4% withdrawal route where they take out 4% a year doesn't seem to be used anymore. What, what advice do you give to people on how to get through retirement once they don't have the job anymore?
2: Well, they have to start th- stop thinking in terms of wealth and start thinking in terms of income. I think a big reason people are afraid to spend down their assets is they've been in the wealth mindset. Their whole savings period, like, I have to build this up, I have to build this up, I have to build this up, and it's scary to draw that down, especially when you're facing potentially expensive end of life health expenses. But people do have to understand they did save to have the lifestyle and retirement that they want, especially in the early part of retirement. You know when they should be able to enjoy themselves and go on trips and you know spoil their grandkids if they can afford it so the way I like to think about it is you need to start thinking about your wealth in terms of income and you know an annuity is not right for anyone but it is a good benchmark of what and how much your income can how much wealth your income can how much wealth your I'm sorry I'm not saying this right how much income you can get from your wealth each year So it can tell you, all right, you know, if you have a million dollars, you can spend $50,000 a year. And from there, you want to think about, all right, how much income do I absolutely need to pay all my expenses, to pay basic health expenses, to pay for housing, upkeep, to pay for my car? And then you want to invest those in some sort of low-risk income plan. It might be an annuity or it could be some sort of laddered bond portfolio. And from there, maybe put the rest of your assets in something riskier, either for more discretionary spending like trips or maybe even to keep an emergency fund for wealth. And then think about maybe putting those in slightly more aggressive assets and then pursuing some sort of spend down rule, but just for that. So I think you want to start thinking about different wealth buckets and that have different risk characteristics and make sure that you have the income you need for as long as you need it for those absolutely basic necessary expenses.
1: So the problem today is you have very low interest rates. You've got CDs at 1% and 2% and even long bonds at 2 and 3%. Um, in order to get a higher yield, you have to do junk bonds or uh, foreign bonds or um, you know, exotic kind of vehicles. What, what do you tell people who, who want to get that kind of income, don't want to take much risk in today's environment?
2: Well, I said it's a hard problem. I mean, I think when people talk about low interest rates, they don't think about that there are. I mean, people talk about them as if there's no cost, and there's a lot of cost, especially if you're retired. The cost of low risk income is really high, and if it just it, if you need more low risk income than you can afford, then you have to sort of get a little creative. It might be working longer. It might be delaying Social Security until you're 70. That's a really easy way to increase your earnings. or maybe even said being open to an annuity because annuity companies or insurance companies can pool together different people you know they they're sort of averaging across people who live longer and people who die earlier so you can get a little bit more that way of course you give up liquidity and as i said they're not right for everyone for a lot of reasons so you know this it's amazing to me that how high interest rates were they were what like 5 or 6% when the government ran a surplus in the late 90s yeah. i mean it's, it's insane how low they are, and that really does pose a cost to savers, or certainly retirees are now in this phase where they're looking for low-risk ways to spend their income, and you know it's not fair, but that's the price of it now, so you have to get a little bit more creative.
1: And you think in Europe, where there's literally negative interest rates, you're, you're actually giving up money to, to mm-hmm. keep it at a Swiss bank or something. Uh, you're, that's very high-cost, low-risk is what you're saying, Right.
2: Yeah, but this is the big theme of the book is that there's always this cost to safety and you get more if you take risk, but you do risk downside. And so once you know the costs and once you know your goals, you can make a better trade off, which is why I said like you don't even have to buy an annuity, but it does help you price what that low risk portfolio looks like. And from there, you can make decisions of, well, what really is a necessary good for me? What really is discretionary? And maybe you adjust those categories to adjust what you can afford.
1: Yeah. Now, you have five rules in the book. We're going to try to get through all of them. The first rule is no risk, no reward. And you tell the story of the woman who founded Cinnabon, uh, Kate, Kat Cole, I guess her name was. Just briefly tell us the, the Cinnabon story and how she changed things around to increase her return with uh, minimal risk.
2: Yeah, so she's an interesting case and in that I've never encountered someone who has such a clear objective. And I think this is where, honestly, like I said in the book, I go through you know, some more complex risk strategies. But there's one thing you can always do that gives you the highest odds of success. And it's so simple yet so hard, which is being really clear on what you're taking a risk for. And I mean, this is what we call like in finance goal setting. It's like the difference between knowing you want your money in a year versus 20 years totally depends on your strategy. And Kat is really good at that. I tell the story of how she was like maybe 30, barely 30, maybe 32. And she gets hired to run Cinnabon, you know, and she didn't even finish college. You know, She was a Hooters waitress who worked her way up through the Hooters chain and was given this company to run. And it was like 2010 and everyone was like, no one wants junk food anymore. We have to have a healthy option. I don't know if you remember, like McDonald's was like coming out with all these salads. Yeah. Like, you know, and like no one goes to McDonald's for a salad. But everyone felt like they had to remake themselves in this healthy way. So Cinnabon was like, we have an 800 calorie pastry. We're facing declining sales. We need a diet Cinnabon bun. And she just went in, she's like, but this tastes terrible. And it's still 600 calories. So, you know, the goal, is people got confused. They were taking, wanting change because they knew they needed change. And we often do this with risk, like I need to shake things up. So somehow a lower calorie roll became the goal. When she's like, no, our goal has always been to increase sales and no one's going to buy this. So therefore, there's no point in doing it. So she had the idea of just making a smaller roll, you know, it's fewer calories and still tastes good and in fact you know a lot of people can eat an 800 calorie roll it's kind of big and overwhelming and that just seems so obvious doesn't seem like a risk but it really was at the time was this young woman coming into this company you know with all these older people who'd been in the business for years and people figured if they sold something smaller it would be cheaper and that could take business away from the larger role and she was like no I think this will bring in new customers and she was right because she was very clear that it was always about increasing revenue.
1: Very good. So what's the lesson to learn from that for people and the kind of risk that they take?
2: Always make sure you have a very clear goal and don't lose sight of what it is you're taking a risk for. You can't just take a risk for risk's sake. You can't just say, I need a change, so I'm going to quit my job. You have to be really clear about what it is you need from a job. Or this is said, if you're saving money, what it is your goal is to spend that money.
1: Yeah. Your next chapter is about uh, when to reject safety and go for more. And that's when to take more risk in order to get a higher return. What are some of the rules from
2: that? Well, I think the first thing is you have to price what is risk-free. So the foundation of all financial models is what we call this risk-free asset. And that helps you calibrate how much risk you have to take. So I was talking earlier about retirement. It's like you have the the risk-free price of retirement is an annuity. So you get a price of what is risk-free to you. And from there, you can figure out if you can afford it, if you want it, if you don't. And then you can figure out if you have to take more risk to get what you want.
1: Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Allison Schrager. She's the co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners, a journalist at Quartz, and the author of a new book called "An Economist Walks Into a Brothel." Uh, her website, you can find out more about her and her her book, is AllisonSchrager.com. We'll be back after this. Hiring isn't as easy as putting an ad in the newspaper and posting on a job board. With more qualified candidates than ever, you need something that helps you find the right people for your business, and LinkedIn Jobs does just that by recommending matches based on the criteria you set. With more than 500 million active members, people come to LinkedIn every day to make connections, grow their careers, and discover new job opportunities. And nearly 90% of LinkedIn users are open to new opportunities, but not actively scanning job boards. That means LinkedIn Jobs gives you access to an entirely different demographic than anyone else. I tried LinkedIn Jobs myself and was amazed at how fast the perfect candidates I was looking for showed up. LinkedIn Jobs uses both knowledge of hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Factors like collaboration, work ethic, and adaptability are all taken into consideration. So LinkedIn Jobs can help you find someone that's not only qualified, but also matches with your company's culture. Sure, your LinkedIn Jobs matches are based on skills and background, but also on the candidates' interests, activities, and passion. LinkedIn Jobs get you job in front of the most relevant, qualified candidates so you can focus on making a hire you're excited about. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash moneyanswers and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash answers. Terms and conditions apply.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Alison Schrager. She's the co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners, a journalist at Quartz, and author of a new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. You can find out more about her and her website at alisonschrager.com. Welcome back to the show, Allison. Oh, great to be here. You did a, show, a, a piece recently in the New York Times about the concentration of money on the uh, art market and how these high-end paintings and sculptures are taking, sucking out the life, I guess you <laughs> might say, of the medium and small size market. Just talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, as an economist, you know, I think one of the big things everyone's worried about is the more polarized economy and the superstar effect. I mean, this is not unique to art in that what you see is sort of the top tier getting all the benefits. And in fact, even if you, it really actually just. Dis- explains most of the income inequality we're seeing. It's not that within a company, the managers are getting paid more than the workers. It's that certain companies make a lot more money than everyone else and everyone gets rich who happens to work there. And so I think we saw this last week with the Jeff Kuhn sculpture. He got 91 million dollars, which is a record for a living artist. and just the Hockney painting a couple months ago was the record before that. And what you're seeing in the art market are these stars, the Kunzes, the Hockneys, getting just these ridiculous amount of money for their art. In the meantime, you know art is a very special commodity, and that value you know is so hard to discern. So what happens is you get these huge trends and what before what you had is you had, you know, you'd start off, even Kunz and Hockney started off as like smaller artists and they work their way through these smaller galleries and these smaller galleries are patroned by collectors who can't spend 90 million, but can maybe spend 30,000, $50,000 on art. The thing is when the superstar part gets so large and you get these huge numbers, people just assume that 30 or $50,000 art isn't worth it. So they're just staying away from the market. And what we're finding is, in conjunction with other things that are hard for small businesses, like lack of access to capital. Is that these small and mid sized galleries are closing. And it's very concerning because it's not clear now where new art is going to come from because small, mid sized galleries pay, play this very important function into developing the new pipeline of new artists. And, you know, we don't really, is it? The superstar effect is happening in all industries, and economists still don't know quite what it's going to mean. But we know at least for art, it's definitely going to mean fewer artists, less mobility, and more inequality.
1: As an economist, do you have a solution? Maybe that's not the right word, but something that can help income inequality. That seems to be the issue today. And there's a lot of uh, Bernie Sanders and kind of socialism and redistribution. That seems to be one solution. The other side is to uh, grow the pie, I guess you might say, and it'll trickle down. What, what is your view on the best way to uh, get at income inequality?
2: Well, I guess, you know, it goes back to, like I was saying before, about what's identifying the problem right? Like inequality in of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, what we're seeing with the superstar effect, not maybe for art, but in other industries is companies that are more productive and more innovative than other companies in their industry. And you don't want to necessarily correct that because that's good. Um, But of course you do have this, you know, this inequality, which in the case of the art market does mean you don't get mobility, but does mean maybe the best people don't become artists anymore. And that could hurt her innovation and productivity in the long run. So I think rather than just trying to punish people or take away assets, you do want to think more about how do we grow the pie? How do we make sure that mobility and opportunity are still available? And I think we have to take a really hard look. I mean, I'm not opposed to redistribution, but you want to make sure you're just not redistributing for the sake of redistributing. If you're going to, you know, I'm not a big fan of wealth tax just because I think implementing it is very hard. But maybe, as I said, if we did a more progressive version of a consumption tax, I mean, you said maybe you pay a huge tax if you spend $90 million on art. Um, and using that money to really, as I said, improve education, improve infrastructure, so that you sort of have a better base of well-skilled people who can better take advantage of the superstar economy and hopefully level it out some.
1: Yeah, very good. All right, let's get back to the book. So you have a whole chapter on Hollywood. Uh, where there's a lot of risk. You never know if a movie is going to be a blockbuster or a dud. Uh, What are some things that people can learn from the way Hollywood looks at risk that might help them in their own finances?
2: Well, this is actually, I'd say, you know, not to be dramatic, but one of the biggest questions of our time, which is we're, we're in this world now where we have so much data, Right, to sort of data is how you predict the future. Uh, you know, we always like to think we're forward looking, but ultimately, data is all we have is to guide us. And the story I have about Hollywood is how people are always trying to figure out what the next big hit is going to be, And the only thing they have to work with is, a, is to measure risk. So when I talked about risk being that distribution of all the things that can happen, that's based on what happened in the past. So when people try to predict what a movie is going to be, they use that distribution, or certainly the guy I tell the story of did. he did a Monte Carlo simulation based on old data to see what movies are going to be successful. And based on that Monte carlo simulation, it's like, this is the odds this is going to be successful. But the problem is, and this is true whether or not you use big data or small data, whether or not you're using data to build AI or whether you're not, is data is always based on the past. And with movies, it's a really hard data problem. One, because you have this extreme skew of, you know, most movies lose money, but then, or certainly at the, at the box office they do, but then the range of what's successful goes anywhere from break even to like huge blockbuster and they're all equally probable. So you're always like sort of trying to take a shot in the dark here. And also the data changes so much. Like you think about what it, the money was for making a movie 10 years ago, you could count on DVD sales. That market is just dead. Now you have China. Now you have comic book franchises. So like you might have a model that works with data for a couple of years, but then the data just changes. And it's certainly happening now, not only with, you know, China being a larger market, but with just with streaming. You now have all this data that never existed before and who finishes a movie as opposed to more crude statistics of whether or not people went to the box office and you weren't quite sure of the demographics. They were actually really imperfect. So now you have this much better data to measure stuff, but you still are always going to be undermined by this idea that tastes change and markets change so much. And that makes risk measurement really hard in any market. We certainly see this in the financial markets. I mean, think about inflation. You know, people think... I hear people say on Twitter all the time, and that's not a great place for economic analysis, but, you know, it's what people say, is like inflation is no longer an issue because it hasn't been an issue in the last 30, 40 years. But I think people who've been around longer, like inflation, can always be a risk. So do you use data data based on the last 30 or 40 years, or do you look at inflation data based on the last 60 years?
1: Yeah. Okay, the next chapter you talk about the secret lives of the paparazzi and the risk that they take in trying to get the right shot of the celebrity and being there at the right moment. It's kind of a risky strategy. What can people learn from how paparazzi get the shot they need and uh, in, in the kind of risk they're taking to do that?
2: Well, I think, first of all, you have to realize when you're facing a risk, you want to figure out what kind of risk you're facing, because depending on the type of risk, you need a different strategy. So the paparazzi face two broad types of risk, which is the same risk you more or less face when you're an investor, which is one, the idiosyncratic risk, which is the risk an individual stock is going to rise and fall, you know, like Facebook. And, you know, in financial markets, you can get rid of that risk fairly easily, but just by owning a lot of stocks. Diversification gets rid of idiosyncratic risk. And the paparazzi more or less do the same thing. So they face a lot of idiosyncratic risk of like happening to be at the right place in the right time and getting that lucky shot. So what they do is they diversify. So they form these alliances of other paparazzo And they share tips, sometimes royalties, which effectively is diversifying away their risk. So you don't depend on your luck, you depend on the luck of a lot of people. Of course, you get more money for an exclusive shot. So you always have an incentive to cheat on your alliance. So the alliances are always falling apart, which means they kind of have to get stuck with the idiosyncratic risk. But then it becomes too much for them to bear, so they reform. And it means that everyone kind of hates each other. That maybe is why they're always seen as very grumpy peoples. They always have these bitter <laughs> histories. The other big risk is a risk everyone's facing these days, which is also much harder to manage is systematic risk, which is the risk the whole stock market could crash. Or that your entire job could disappear because of technology and that's what's happening with the paparazzi because once um the recession came along and people stopped buying glossy magazines and the market moved online you know they business model changed for agencies which means like before you might get a fifteen thousand dollars for a picture of a celebrity getting coffee now maybe you'll get five dollars and that's a it's like a whole stock market collapsing. You don't quite know how to manage that risk. It's much harder. Traditionally, what people do in finance is they find those very rare, often expensive assets, you know, low, low beta assets, I guess is what, you know you call them, which means they don't vary with the stock market as much. Um, and that's more or less what the paparazzi do, too, is they will spend more time investing in, I guess, what's a low beta um, celebrity photo, which is like a picture of a new baby. Or, you know, a picture of a celebrity getting married. Of course, that also, like the beta on that isn't what it used to be either because now with Instagram, celebrities are scooping them and sharing these pictures themselves. So it's just getting harder and harder. A lot of them have to leave the industry.
1: Indeed. Then you've got a chapter on poker playing, a professional poker player named uh, Phil Helmuth. Mm -hmm. Uh, What can people learn from professional poker players?
2: Well, that's the section on understanding irrationality and understanding, you know, when your behavioral biases undermine good risk-taking. And I, with Phil Helmuth, I talk about um, loss aversion and how when we're down, we try to avoid loss so much, we'll take more risk to get out of that situation. And that's a huge issue with poker and that there's evidence that when people are winning, they take less risk than when they're losing. But to play, according to Phil, who's a very successful at this, He says to play poker well, you have to be consistent and you have to be patient. you got to wait for your hand. He only plays 12% of his hands, which is amazing because he's such a volatile personality. He's known for throwing tantrums at the end of every time he loses. So the idea that he can like channel losing and stay rational in it just shows how much awareness can really change our behavior. And he also goes in managing his risk. He makes sure he doesn't have too much of his own money at stake. He cuts side deals with the other players. So he always makes sure he gets a payoff and never has that much to lose. And that helps him stay rational.
1: Amazing. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Alison Schrager. She's the co-founder of the risk advisory firm LifeCycle Finance Partners, a journalist at Quartz, and the author of a new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Uh, her website, we can find out more about her and her web her, her book, is alisonschrager.com. We'll be back after this.
0: From the boardroom to you You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Allison Schrager, is the co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners. She's a journalist at Quartz, and she's the author of the new book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Her website, com. Welcome back to the show, Allison. So another area you talk about is diversification, and here you talk about the uh, horse breeding market, and you say the stud market is inefficient. Tell us what we can learn from the whole uh, horse breeding. You've got big winners, people who won the Triple Crown and can be worth a lot more, and a lot of those are not worth as much. How, How does all that work?
2: Well, you know, as you know, when you study finance, you learn you know, what's an efficient portfolio. It's one that's perfectly diversified. So you have all these different stock characteristics that cancel each other out. And what happens when you have an efficient portfolio is you get more reward for the minimum amount of risk. So anyway, it's generally true you know, more risk is more reward. Um, it is true that you can have two portfolios that have the same reward and one's riskier than the other. And you should never do that. It's like overpaying. You know, risk is the cost, rewards the benefit. So uh, I found the horse markets really inefficient because after before 1986, you had a lot of people would breed a horse and then they would race it. And so when they would look for a sire... You know, they would, you know, look for, try to think of a pairing that would make a good racehorse. But then after 1986 tax reform, it completely destroyed horse racing as a tax shelter. So all the investors bailed. So you're stuck holding a lot of your own risk. So the breeders decided to offload their risk largely by selling horses after one year. The problem is at the one year mark, you don't know how good a racer horse is going to be. The only objective information you have is who its parents are. And as you can imagine, you know, a mayor can only have one horse a year, but like a stud, there's really no limit as to how many um babies they can have in a year. So you went from horses, you know, maybe impregnating 30 horses a year to maybe having 230 a year. And, you know, as I said, like the art market, there's now this superstar economy for horses or horse studs, where the ones at the top of the market are getting all of this big stud fees. But it also means you're getting really inbred horses, right? Mm -hmm. Because if everyone wants the same sire, you you know, that's a fairly small pool. And you're breeding generation after generation. You end up with super inbred horses. And inbreeding is a lot like inbreeding your portfolio. If you crossbreed, you know, on average, you're going to do better. But but you have a you have a narrower distribution and it's a lot more predictable. and On an average, you do better. But when you inbreed, you end up with this really wide distribution. It's really unpredictable. I mean, becoming a good racehorse, like the next Secretariat, is kind of a genetic freak of all these little components that make you a good racehorse, all being perfectly aligned. But you need them to be perfectly aligned. Like Secretariat had, a, it was like a twenty-pound heart. Most horses' hearts are like nine pounds. But you can't just have a big heart. You have to have a big heart that aligns with the right hip or whatever. So, you know, when you inbreed, you end up with all these freaky characteristics. They don't always work well together. So you have a better odds of having a horse that's just never going to race. As opposed to if you just crossbred and diversified your gene pool a little bit more, the odds are you're going to do better on average, even if you don't get that high upside of getting the next secretariat. It's sort of like accepting the fact you're not going to pick the next Amazon.
1: Yes, indeed. Very good. Okay, let's get to another area, which you call moral hazards uh, with insurance. And here the analogy you use is uh, surfers with big, big waves. So what can people learn from surfers about getting the right insurance?
2: Well, you know, you want to get insurance, but you also have to be careful. Because, I, I, you know, believe it or not, the big wave surfers in Hawaii have an annual risk conference where they debate moral hazard and systemic risk, which is they have all this new technology that helps them take more risks. Like, you know, like I think I talk about the guy who... You know, brought jet skis to big wave surfing. And jet skis are, in a lot of ways, a lot like insurance. They are insurance, and in that anything, insurance is anything that bails you out if something happens. So you have a jet ski waiting for you in case you wipe out, it can rescue you, it picks you up, takes you to a boat, you have a much better chance of surviving a wipeout. But like any insurance, like a stock option, you can always flip around insurance and lever up and take more risk. And that's what they're doing. They're using the jet skis to push them onto bigger waves. So they, the jet ski not only prevents, creates this moral hazard of, I'll take a bigger risk because I know there's a jet ski there to rescue me, but I can also use this jet ski to take even bigger risks than I was physically capable of before. So, But the problem with that is, is it's not just you. I mean, if you take on these huge risks, you're posing risks to others. You can crash into someone. It takes resources to rescue you. Um it takes resources away from other people. The person who's rescuing you might be put in danger. So this question, which honestly is the same thing you see when you go to finance conferences, is now that we have this technology that enables us to take bigger risks and create this moral hazard, and if this poses risk to others, where does personal responsibility lie?
1: Yeah. So I mean, in, in taking an insurance, some people say that they have too much insurance, some people have too little insurance. How do you get the right balance in the different kinds of insurances that you need. Because there's many. There's car insurance, some of it's re- required. There's mm-hmm. life insurance where some people have a huge amount, and some people have none. How do you get the right balance in in getting the correct amount of insurance?
2: Well it has something to do with they said you know, making sure you're insuring things that you want to make sure are protected. And also has something to do with your level of risk aversion. You know, what makes sense for you? You know, I I talk a lot about the Black Shoals model. Um, which I think is largely misunderstood. Uh, you know, it's seen as, you know, it gets criticism because it's not this true price of risk, although there's no one true price of risk. But what it does is it fulfills a really important function, which is it helps you realize what situation is riskier than the other and when is insurance worth it. What Black does is it puts a value on insurance and it helps you understand what components make some insurance more valuable than the other. Like, do you have a higher probability of this insurance event happening. Like, you know, are are you do you have to worry about you no know, flood insurance if you live in Arizona versus Houston? You know, do you have a higher variability of different things happening? How long do you need insurance for? These are all the things you have to think about when you buy insurance. And that's what Black does is help you realize how important those factors are.
1: But on the other side you have the insurance company that has actuaries and many decades of experience as to mm-hmm. what the likelihood so, I mean, the average individual doesn't have that kind of expertise in figuring out how much risk. It's like betting against the house and in, in gambling in a certain way.
2: It is and it isn't. But the individual also has a lot of inside information that the insurer does not have. Less so in the age of big data. But you know if you're a good driver or not. You know if, you know, you have a shaky foundation. You know, sometimes there is a symmetry on both sides.
1: Yeah. Then you have a chapter about the military, what you call the fog of war, When you go into war, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen. You know some of the possibilities. How can people learn from how the military analyzes risk and mitigating that risk?
2: Well, I think there's this constant tension within the military of, um, you know, wanting to plan. You know, you want to use these risk models and remove all the risk from warfare. It makes war cheaper. It makes it more predictable. War is horrible. You don't want people to die. But then again, war is innately unpredictable because you have two people fighting something out and you know you might have technology that reduces risk, but then your enemy can start using technology. So I think the tension in both anyone who uses risk management tools and certainly in the military uses them a lot is how much room do you leave for flexibility? Can you just structure a war so you have no room for flexibility and everything's planned? What happens if something happens that's unpredictable? For that chapter, I spoke to H.R. McMaster, who is well-known for leading this tank battle in the first Iraq war, where he defied orders, like things were planned, and he just saw an opportunity to keep advancing, which was actually quite reckless. But, you know, he's like, it was the right decision because circumstances changed on the ground and I was there. And so you need to have this, You need. I think the where you land is, it's important to use risk models. You know, just because they're not perfect, just because they can't anticipate everything that's going to go wrong, doesn't mean that they don't anticipate a lot of things that are going to go wrong. And that's very valuable. So you should use them, but also leave that element of flexibility intact so you can abandon your plan and maybe do something different when you need to.
1: Yeah. So today there's a lot of speculation in some really high risk things like cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, where people took a huge amount of risk. <laughs> it soared to 20,000, then it plunged to 3,000, now it's kind of come back. When you look at something like that, how should you evaluate the risk and whether you should get involved in it?
2: Well, I I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, I think Bitcoin is inherently very risky. I mean, there's no, you know, it's, it's its value is completely based on scarcity, but doesn't have an intrinsic value. So I think you always have to worry that it could go to nothing or you know it is a new technology it's like investing in some ways like an ipo and that there's still a lot of uncertainty around it so um you know i definitely have always felt like bitcoin is a very very risky asset i think even people i've spoken to or not spoken to i once did a story on the dark web and spent some time talking to drug dealers on reddit who use the bitcoin and i mean honestly it the, the exchange rate risk poses an enormous risk to them. And that's why I always thought Bitcoin was risky, because anyone who actually uses it faces an immense amount of currency risk that they have no way of hedging. And that means it's always going to be a risky asset.
1: Indeed. So in about two minutes we have enough. Just kind of sum up the, the lessons that people can learn from the book. We, we talked about brothels, the military. We talked about uh, poker players, mm-hmm. uh, surfers, all these different people evaluating risk in different ways. What lessons people can learn From the book and from these people to do better at taking appropriate risks in their own lives?
2: I think it is, you know, feel comfortable taking risks. I think most people should be taking more risks, but be good at risk taking. As I said, it's not a binary thing, either you take a risk or you don't. It's thinking through what am I looking for? What are my goals? And how much risk do I need to get there? And how can I manage risk along the way, but still be, you know, prepared for the unexpected? As I said, there's I find most people are really good risk takers in some aspect of their life, but then get overwhelmed investing for their retirement. When it's really the exact same process, you just need to sometimes call out the science behind what you're doing to make it all clearer everywhere.
1: Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Allison Schrager. Uh, she's the uh, co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners. Uh, you can see her work at the uh, website Quartz, and her new book is called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. You can find out more about her at her website, Schrager.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Allison.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks again. And we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answers Show. Goodbye for now.
0: Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.